Good morning. Welcome to South Hills Church. We're glad that you're here. Those of you that are joining us online, we're glad that you're with us as well. On this Mother's Day, uh, we know that uh, this day can be challenging for some. Uh, For some, it's not a day to celebrate. For others, it is a day to celebrate. And uh, from my heart to you, uh, I want you to know, ladies in the room, I am grateful for every one of you. Know that God sees you. He loves you. He cares about you. And thank you for the encouraging words, the advice you give, the wisdom you show in leading within your families, uh, within your workplaces, within the schools, wherever it might be. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for who you are and that God loves you and cares about you. And so thank you to all the ladies in the room this morning. We appreciate you. Couple of things this morning. As you leave uh, this morning, ladies, we have a small gift out in the lobby uh, for you. We we just uh, ask that you take one of those as a small token of our appreciation for all that you do. Also, want to mention that in the coffee shop today, if you brought your mom, uh, guess what? It's buy one get one free, so you can treat mom this morning. And uh, I guess I just gave away uh, the ending of that. But you can say, Mom, I bought you a drink a coffee this morning, and you don't have to let her know that it was free, okay? Uh, I feel like I just gave all that away, but anyway. uh, Speaking of moms, uh, my mom's here today. Uh, My dad and my mom are living here in the Tri-Cities for several months, and so it's been a privilege to have uh, them around. I have a... Now, you'll get focused on the adorable kid right here. I want you to focus on this lady right here. This is my mom. And, uh, and she's a trooper. I love her to death. And uh, she was the mom of boys. So I have a younger brother. There's my dad. So she grew up in a home of all boys. And uh, you can imagine what dinner time was like with a couple of boys and a dad who wanted to be a boy uh, still. That our conversations at times were not everything that she would want them to be and uh, sometimes would go south uh, very quickly, especially as an older brother to a younger brother. My job at the dinner table was to try to get my brother in trouble at the dinner table. So whether it was laughing or singing or something, um, so you can imagine around the table what it might have been like. Um, My mom also loved at times at dinner time, to bring out the candles for our dinner table. And she would set this nice table with the candles, and she would turn off the lights, and she was trying to create this environment, this serene space, and uh, for us boys, you can imagine what that was like. Oftentimes, we would joke, we'd be like, why are the lights out? We can't see what we're eating. And uh, inevitably, somebody would turn the lights out, and the moment was gone, and, uh, but she was a trooper. She would be persistent and she would do it at other times again. And we'd go through the whole process again. I share about my mom because this morning, what we look at in our passage from the Sermon on the Mount is really what my mom embodies. My mom is not perfect. Um, she has her own failings and faults. Um, she will admit to those. But what I love about my mom is that uh, my mom never meets a stranger. That no matter where she is, within moments, she will know your life story better than you know your life story. And uh, you will walk away from talking with my mom thinking, that's someone I could hang out with. 
In fact, in the short period of time that they've been here, they're living over at the Affinity Apartments, and uh, they shared a a week or so ago that they're leaving at the end of June to go back home, and several of the ladies that she's made friends with have said, oh, no, don't go, and that's our prayer too. We don't want them to go either, but uh, she's made fast friends because she has this disposition towards people, um, that she loves her family deeply, she cares about people genuinely, and uh, she loves to be involved in her community. And uh, as a teacher, she taught for 35 years um, in the public school system, and so she just has this natural ability towards people, to love them, and most importantly, to share with them about Jesus. And, uh, and I love that about her. And uh, I'm so grateful that she's been my mom for 48 years. Um, and uh, because if I share my age, then it shares hers, and she doesn't like that. So let's, we'll just mumble that through. Um, but as we look at the Sermon on the Mount this morning, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is what is our disposition towards people. Now, this passage is, uh, is made up of several different things. And at first glance, as we read through it, you're going to say, well, how do these things kind of go together? And uh, hopefully, hopefully I'll do a good enough job of putting them together that you'll see. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. Um, you'll find Matthew, the first book of the, what we call the New Testament. It's about three-fourths of the way. Uh, I will say one of my favorite books. I don't know why, but um, it is one of my favorites. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you, sh- you can pick up a sheet at the back, and it has this passage on there as well. Let's stand this morning as we read God's Word. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Father God, it is your word, it is true, and it is right. And it pierces into the hearts of who we are. It causes us to examine who we are in light of who you are. And so, Father, I pray that it will be your words, your words that are spoken this morning, that as we gather together, we'd be mindful of the people around us, that we would be understanding more about who you are and your great love for not only us, but for this world. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
Now you're reading that passage and you're thinking, That's a, this sounds like a great Mother's Day passage. And uh, I'll just throw this on. Scott Scott gave me this passage. So as we walk through Sermon on the Mount, this is where we landed today. And we're going to finish up in the next couple weeks on this this great teaching of Jesus. And I think what I, what I appreciate most about walking through the Sermon on the Mount is how much it causes us to think about who we are in Christ. That so much of what, what Jesus is teaching is not so that, uh, that we gain this great uh, self-righteousness about ourselves, but truly about having these eyes and a heart that sees the world around us. And in a world around us that is, in many ways, crumbling, and we look at the chaos and the different things, and God, in His, His sovereignty and His love for us, said, here's some teaching that you can take hold of, and as you live these things, you will live differently in a world that is full of darkness. It's full of all these things that are opposite of what Jesus is teaching here. So the first thing we see this morning is, in our passage is that our, our disposition towards others, our disposition towards others. And as you read this first verse of chapter seven, you read this and it says, do not judge, do not judge, or you will be judged. And we love this passage because here's how we read it. Don't judge me. That's how we read this passage. And you're not the first ones to read this passage that way. But in fact, it doesn't say, don't judge me. In fact, it's not about others judging me. What Jesus is talking about right from the get-go is our disposition towards others. Do not judge. Do not judge. And so we want to start thinking about what is my disposition towards others? The context of what Jesus is really talking about here and what he's driving at in this opening verse is not, don't judge me. Rather, it is a call to others to not judge us. It is a charge to us to not judge others. It comes down to our disposition. And we'll revisit that at the end of this passage. But the very thing that Jesus is talking about here is a disposition towards others that looks unfavorably on the character and actions of others, which leads invariably to the pronouncing of rash, unjust, and unloving judgments upon them. I don't know if you know this, but we live in a day and time where people are judging constantly. You did it this morning. You didn't even probably know that you started judging before you even stepped out of your house this morning. You started thinking about things. Maybe you threw, uh, scrolled through a, a social media thread and, and you saw it there and, and other things that are happening. And, and judgment is pervasive and it's rash and it looks unfavorably at other people because it points out something that we'll look at later about, the disp- about how we're seeing other people. Some of you may even argue that the very thing that someone needs is to be judged. They need judgment from me because if I don't point it out to them, who will? And so you think, hey, listen, that person needs to know. They, I need to judge them. I need to call them out on those things because if I don't tell them, how will they change their ways? 
And I don't know that Jesus is talking about that either. The disposition that we have towards others is super important for us. I mean, it is possible that they do not even know the faults that I am wanting to point out to them. So I'm perfectly in line with judging them. And everybody else is judging, so why don't I just jump on the wagon as well? Our lives are filled with other people who very quickly, conveniently, consistently judge us and others. And so we wait in the wings ready to pounce when they present the opportunity, the golden opportunity for us to rashly pass our, un, our very qualified and our very educated judgment upon them. We can't wait to point out when someone screws up, how they make a mess of things, how they dress or how they're raising their kids or how they go to eat or where they go to eat or how they share their opinion. Most of us are very good at passing judgment on people. The problem is, when we judge others negatively, what we really do is we punish them. We punish them by avoiding them, by gossiping about them, about getting even with them in some way, or just correcting them. And what Jesus is pointing at is a constant attitude of judgment that we can carry with us. That constant attitude of judgment that we can carry with us provides a window into how we see people. And if our disposition towards others is to constantly see their faults and to judge those faults, then that's the attitude that Jesus is addressing here. The question then that we need to ask on a regular basis is what is it that I am looking for in people? What am I looking for in that person at work? What am I looking for in that, that student at school? What am I looking for in that person? Am I looking for something to judge and to find their faults, or am I looking for something to encourage them, to find something in them that I can encourage and, and even, to some degree, praise in them? Because our disposition towards people is, is not to cut them down, there's enough of that in the world. There's enough people that will cut down an individual in a heartbeat. Just post something on social media and find out how quickly someone will judge you on your opinion or your thoughts. What people need to see is that we can encourage them. We can find the praise in who they are. We can love them with a disposition that says, I want to show you God's love, not point out Again, your faults, like so many others have. Jesus would have you look for those things that would build others up, not tear them down. Our disposition toward encouraging others grows out of our love for others. Friends and enemies alike, out of a great love for others, we are to seek words of encouragement, grace, forgiveness, and honor, not harsh critique, not to be vindictive or prideful intentions. Because in verse 2, Jesus says this. Here's the standard that you'll be judged. In verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I don't know about you, but if I start to use that as my measuring rod... 
on how I want others to judge me, guess what? I'm going to be less likely to judge others because I don't want your judgment. I don't want it. I don't want you to shame me. I don't want you to guilt me. I want you to see a a life that is full of integrity. It's full of grace. It's full of love. But if I start judging you based on, on just whatever, and I don't think about what would I want from others, then I start throwing all these things around. My disposition towards others is to start to see all these faults and misgivings and where they missed the mark and they're a terrible person and I'm not seeing who Christ sees them to be. Because see what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 5 is this. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He, who? The Lord will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Do you know what I can't see in you? I can't see your heart. Oh, I can perceive to know your heart, but I don't know your heart. I don't even know a lot of times your motives. But there is one who does know your heart. The Lord knows your heart. He knows the motives of who you are. And when other people may not see that, he sees that. He knows that. And Paul writes that at the appointed time, God will judge appropriately in who he is. He sees what is hidden. He sees what is not hidden. And he is a righteous judge. You and I, do not judge rightly many times. We judge based on our feelings, our emotions, about what we're experiencing at the moment. And that's where the rash, harsh judgments come because I want to come back at you the way that you've come at me. And Jesus says, check the measurement. Check your heart. Where is your heart's disposition towards others? The only one who truly knows the heart of people is God. And I'm not him, and neither are you. And so we must approach with caution our disposition toward others when they act, speak, engage in ways that are contrary to what our motives might be in similar circumstances. Take note that Jesus does make room for how we should approach others. He describes a right path to reveal right and wrong with others. And Jesus offers this discerning eye when it comes to the actions we take with others. He says it in verses three through five. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, this, this seems absurd, right? Jesus is talking. He's like, if you have this big old plank, and if I walked on stage this morning and I had this big old plank, two by four, sticking out of my, my face, you would notice it, right? Like, it's, it would be weird. Like, what's Matthew doing walking around with a big old board sticking out of his eye? 
And the absurdity is just that for us to understand. When Jesus talks about rightly looking at others, what he first says is, what about checking your own self first? You see, what's really easy for you and for me, it's very easy for me to see the speck that you have in your eye, the, the, the fault, the misstep, the failure that I might see is very easy to see in your eye. You know why? Because it helps me ignore the big old plank that's sticking out of my own eye. And Jesus says, the first thing you need to do, if you are going to rightly look at others and your disposition towards others, the first thing you need to do is take care of yourself. You see that big plank that's sticking out of your eye? No, I don't see that. How could I see that? I don't want to see that, which is true of so many of us, right? I don't want to see the plank in my own eye. I don't want to be self-reflecting on who I am. It is not wrong to lovingly help others see the harmful things that might be in their eye. But what Jesus is, is addressing is the self-righteousness with which we can point out the speck in someone else's eye and fail to even acknowledge the great beam in our own. The contrast Jesus gives here is, is true. If I were walking around with that plank in my eye, you would notice it. But how many of us carry those things with us, unwilling to self-examine our own hearts, our own minds, and our own lives? Because it's much easier to examine that in everybody else. The staff is currently uh, reading through a book by uh, Dr. Henry Cloud, who's a, a psychologist and a leadership consultant. And uh, he talks about wise and foolish people. Scott's going to talk about this a little bit more as we get to the end of chapter 7 in a couple of weeks, the wise and foolish builder. But he writes this, a key diagnostic for a wise person. When truth presents itself, the wise person sees the light, takes it in, and makes a judgment, adjustments. The wise person sees the light, takes it in, and makes adjustments. On the flip side of that key diagnostic for the foolish person, the fool tries to adjust truth so he does not have to adjust to it. And I think many times, for myself, I land on the foolish side. I land on the side where I want to make adjustments for other people so that I don't have to make adjustments for myself. But Jesus is talking about being wise in our disposition towards others is starting to by the, at the place of our hearts to start to see what is going on in here with me. Am I willing to start to take a real keen look at the plank in my eye? Some of you might have two by fours. Some of you may have like a, a shim or something like that. I don't know. Whatever it might be, Jesus says, take a look at those things first. What is so great about judging others is it gives us an avenue to not have to explore our own hearts. If I can continually point out all the misgivings, all the faults of someone else, then I don't have to explore it in my own self. 
Judgment of others is often rooted in our selfish, prideful nature. By scrutinizing others, we overpower our own self-reflection. Our own self-deception is rooted in proud and external judgments. It's, in fact, far easier to attack the small speck in someone else's eye than address the large beam protruding from my own eye. To pass blame to others gives me the space to excuse my own behavior because self-reflection brings me to a place of admitting where my faults and where my true indiscretions lie. So how do I take care? How do I take great care in how I have this disposition towards others? Let me give you four practical from uh, writer John Bloom about how we can take care when looking in our disposition towards others. The first thing he says is, be quick to believe innocence. Be quick to believe innocence. Be slow to pronounce guilt when evidence is scant or hearsay or ambiguous. Let's just slow down with pronouncing guilt over everybody. Let's start by just listening to them. Let's see people as innocent before we throw them into the cauldron or fire. The second thing, be thorough before pronouncing guilt. Be thorough. As Christians, we're called to believe the best about each other until sufficient evidence confirms beyond a reasonable doubt that a transgression has occurred. So be thorough before pronouncing guilt. Third, aim for restoration. We've talked about this over the last several months, different times in different places. Our call is to see restoration in people. As believers, we're not, we're not, we're to call out our fellow brothers and sisters at times when we see their, their failings, but it's not to throw them out, it's to welcome them back in. We need to be people of restoration. We want to see people restored and to bring brothers and sisters back and not toss them away. The fourth thing he says is to keep quiet if possible. Keep quiet if possible. Just shut your mouth. I have learned over the years, my wife has helped instruct me. Matthew, you don't have to say everything that comes into your mind. And I'm thankful for that because there are many things that I'm glad that stayed inside. Because at times we just need to be quiet. The greater our distance, the greater our ignorance. Ignorant commentary about someone is never helpful. And it's usually nothing more than gossip or slander. So just shut your mouth. When we're looking at others, our disposition towards them... We want to see, believe innocence. We want to, want to see more about what it is before we pronounce guilt. We want to aim for restoration and sometimes just be quiet. How we judge others says more about us than how we are judged by others. So what's your disposition towards others? What is it that you're looking for? An opportunity to judge or an opportunity to encourage? All right, that's the first part. We got two more to go. Another 45 minutes will be good. The second thing that, that Jesus addresses here is our demeanor toward God. Our demeanor toward God. 
Look what he says here in our passage. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Now, we can read that in a lot of different ways and put lots of things on it. From judging others, Jesus then moves in our passage to discuss once again some practical aspects of prayer, and specifically the demeanor that we have when it comes to prayers to God. As we looked at a couple of weeks ago, prayer is to be a natural behavior of those who follow Christ. We saw in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, there was an expectation Jesus modeled that for us. We see it throughout his life and his ministry that there were many, many times Jesus went alone to the hillsides to pray. He was praying constantly. He was praying all the time. There was an expectation that he was praying, and he models that for us. He taught on prayer, we saw in the Lord's Prayer, and here in verse 7 reminds us that through prayer, we are again expressing our complete dependence on God. In the Lord's Prayer, we found that dependence in the phrase, give us today our daily bread. And Scott mentioned that it's a, an ask for bread, not cake. So it's some, not something superfluous, but it's something necessary to sustain us each and every day. And so our prayers are seeking that dependence upon God. And just as we saw in verse 7, ask anything is not about lottery tickets, new cars, It's not other genie-type requests. Rather, it's a recognition. It's a recognition of our demeanor towards God. It's a demeanor that comes humbly before God. It's a consistent action on our part to be asking, to be seeking, to be knocking of one who is familiar to us and not a stranger. If we're in this relationship with God, God is not a stranger to us. When we come before him humbly, we are asking, seeking, and knocking to someone who is well-known to us. And we are well-known to him. And so rather than it be this, well, God, I'm coming to you demanding lots of things, it's coming and understanding our utter dependence upon him. Prayer reflects the authentic nature of our relationship with God. When we ask, and as followers of God, pursue him humbly to ask, seek, and knock, he responds in his faithfulness and his generosity. This pattern of teaching continues to be repeated from Jesus around prayer, being grounded in the fact that we know who it is we are going to depend, who it is that we are going to lean into and find encouragement when the world seems to be crashing around us. And even when the world isn't crashing around us, we depend upon God. It's also this approach of seeking and asking that begins to curb my desire to be judgy towards others. When I center my focus on the will of God, when I'm focused on Him and His goodness, then I begin to see my demeanor towards God change, but also my demeanor towards others change as well. I'm less likely to jump all over someone when I begin to see them as God sees them. When I'm asking and seeking and knocking with a heart and motive to deal with the plank in my eye, then once I've addressed my plank, I'm better suited to discuss the splinter or speck in someone else's eye. But far too often, we bark at God. In our moments of great anguish and we become demanding, God, give me this, do something about them, remove them, or this, 
And our demands fail to truly embrace the relationship we can have with God. And we wonder, does he care? Does he know me? Doesn't he want good things for me? And this is where verse 8 is helpful. He says, For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You see, there's action on our part, but there's action on God's part as well. Those words there, he receives, finds, opens, those are the actions that God gives to us. Notice Jesus follows the action on our part to ask, seek, and knock with the outcome. For when we come humbly to a place of not demanding but relying on God, is hearing our cries. We find that we receive, we find, and things are open to us. We receive the goodness of God's grace. We find the character of God. And He begins to open our hearts to His purposes, His heart, and His will for our life. Now, this isn't often how we approach prayer because we often come with our big problems, our big questions. We desire big answers. But as we looked at last week, we see again that Jesus told us not to worry. He reminded us of his deep care and his love for you and for me. In many ways, this is follow-up to in verse 7 and 8 of what we looked at when Jesus says, do you notice the birds? They don't worry. They're taken care of. How much more does God care for you and love you? Why would we think that he would treat us any differently? We need to be reminded and can find rest in the mighty and loving care of God. He's not a brute trying to hold us under a thumb and all the things that might be swirling in my life now are are God trying to punish me. God desires to love you through every situation. When earnestly we ask, seek, and knock on the door, he welcomes us into his family through the invitation of his son, Jesus Christ. The moment you realize the plank in your eye and humbly confess before God your sin, your failures, and as you ask for his forgiveness, as you seek to find him in the middle of your life, he opens a door into his family that welcomes you in with a love that only God, only God, full of grace and mercy can provide. When you ask, seek, and knock, you find, you receive, and he opens. And this leads us to the last part of our passage, verse 9, God's character towards us. Look what he says in verse 9. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Verse 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Here Jesus gives us some rhetorical questions. The majority of people know what it looks like to give our children good things over bad things. Jesus says, which of you, if your son asks for bread, is going to give him a stone? I mean, that's foolish. Unless you're pulling a prank on your kids, you're going to give them what they need, right? If they ask for a fish and you give them a snake, now there might be places in the world where snakes are much better than fish, but in Jesus' time, we're talking about the sustenance of bread and fish. Those are important to who we are. 
We know that if our kids are hungry, we're going to give them what they need as we're able to sustain them. If they are asking for bread, we're going to give them bread over a stone and so forth with the fish and the snakes. And while the gifts are good, and we know what it is to give good gifts, according to Jesus, what else is true is that even in our evil, in our depravity, we still know what a good gift for our kids would be. And yet, how much more a good God in His very character of who He is, is good. Our definitions of His goodness fall short, but He is the embodiment of good. There's no evil in Him. God and evil cannot coexist. He's a benevolent God who knows what good gifts we need. And since He is good, we can trust that His gifts for us are good. While at times they may not see to meet our desire, we can know that he seeks in all things to provide our daily bread, to meet our daily sustenance. We must begin to see God for the gracious and generous God that he is. He is not to be seen as a reluctant stranger who we cajole or bully into giving us his gifts or a vicious tyrant who takes pleasure in the tricks he can play on us. Or even as a grandfather type figure who gives us everything we want. Rather, we must see him as the heavenly father who graciously and willingly bestows good gifts of his kingdom in response to our humble submissions before him. The final word of verse 12 is really where we begin in all of this. Our disposition towards others how we, uh, how we discern who God is, and then his character towards us really is wrapped up in this last verse. So in everything, do to others what you would have them to do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. He doesn't say in some things, in the things I like. He says in everything, what's your disposition towards others? How do you see the people around you? Do you see them the way that you want to be seen? Do you see them with love and grace and forgiveness? Do you see them with an opportunity to restore relationships? Do you see them as someone who I can speak truth and life into to encourage and to build up when everyone else is cutting them down? Jesus says, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. How is it that we should discern our disposition toward God and others? It begins by understanding how I want to be treated. God has treated us so good, beyond what we deserve, and yet His goodness treats us so well. Do I want people talking trash about me? Do I want people judging every single action and movement and statement I make? Do I want others to be vicious and malevolent towards me? And if the answer is no, then consider how you are treating others. The question I started with this morning is, what are you looking for in people? Are you looking for their failings and exasperating those? Are you looking to praise and encourage to extend grace and love to others. Because our God has been gracious to us and generous with each of us, and in turn, our lives will reflect these same things. In order 
that we might glorify God. May we pray on these things. Father God, your word challenges us in how we think about others. It's so easy to be quick with our words, to be rash with our thoughts, to destroy people in a heartbeat with our words, with our actions. And you have called us to a greater expectation of how we are to live in this world, a life that's to be lived set apart, a life that is lived to follow after you, that each day is an opportunity for us to take steps towards you. And so, Father, this morning, as these words rush over us, we recognize that in our own lives that uh, we can be judgy. We can easily see the faults, the failings of others, and completely deny what's going on in our own hearts. And so, Father, it begins with us. Whether we're sitting in this room or we're watching online, it begins in our hearts to begin to check those hearts, to begin to see you, that our prayer is that we would seek after you, that we would ask in these moments of our days what it is that your will and your purpose is for what's going on around me, that I might seek you with all my heart. And as I do that, you humbly open the doors to a relationship with you that is beyond anything that we could imagine. The transformation that begins to take place when we step into relationship with you, when we humbly come before you and say, God, I want to know more about you. I want to know who you are. I want to love you with all of my heart. I want to live for you each and every day. I want to be a light in this world, a light of encouragement, of hope, of grace and forgiveness. Father, today that journey might begin with those here. For others here, the journey has been longer, and we're impacted by the world around us more so than we would like to admit. And so we find ourselves looking for the faults in others and pointing those out rather than looking at our own hearts. So Father, today, let it begin with us. Let it begin to permeate through who we are because of who you are. And we pray this. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.